we maybe need to switch these on. Is that on? Yes. yes. Is this on? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So we're just going to wait for some chairs to come in. Because there's a couple more people. No, no, I'm not speaking into it. today and if a fire alarm should sound please leave by either the door you entered heading on to George the Fourth Bridge or by the fire exit to the right of the stage. In any event the library staff will be here to help and guide you. Please may I also remind you to switch off any mobile phones. Now of course I would never read that last one um, to most poetry audiences because I know they have them already switched off. <laughs> I'm Robin Marsak, I'm director of the Scottish Poetry Library, and let me just put in a small plug for that library, which has been closed, as you know, for quite a few months, pending renovation. Oh, I was wrong. <laughs> pending renovation and refurbishment, but we are reopening our doors to the public on the 29th of October, and I think you will find something marvellous when you go down to Clayton's Close and visit us, so I urge you to do that. <coughs> it's my huge pleasure today to be with Christine DeLuca and Christine is a very, very good friend to the library. Um, we're, she's immensely popular as a poet, she is the Edinburgh Macca, we're lucky to have caught her between visits to Shetland and now to Sardinia, so she goes from S to S, and wider as you're going to hear this afternoon when she chooses some poems um, that have meant a great deal to her over the course of her life so far, both as reader of poetry and lover of poetry as it developed, and then, of course, as a poet herself. We do have some copies of her latest pamphlet, That Trickster Son, uh, for sale um, after the event. So without further ado, Christine, um, I'm going to sort of ask Christine some questions as she goes along, but there will be an opportunity also for you to ask her questions towards the end. So Christine brought up in Chetland, I'm wondering whether you sat around the radio of an evening or did you, were you mending fishing nets <laughs> or were you um, in fact uh, batting poetry to and fro to your parents? Oh, I can still remember sitting um, around the radio because we didn't have electricity until I was nearly eight, so radio programmes had to be listened by the whole family because usually only one room had the fire on and... Um, Sometimes there was Charles Dickens, things like that, and uh, I was terrified as a little girl. I can remember sitting under the table with my hands over my ears, because um, it was dark if I went up the stairs, couldn't go up the stairs. Yeah, I do remember that. Yes, mending fishing nets. No, but lots of fishing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, the, and the memories of poetry, because you've said to me that your childhood was in fact full of poetry and song, which I think is a very privileged... Yeah. thing um, and not something perhaps that a lot of us have had the fortune of experiencing and maybe a lot of children now don't have so why, why is that? Well I think my parents are both really keen on poetry uh, they're both teachers and my dad had a penchant for silly songs as well um, constantly singing and then they would put on school concerts and if they were short of an act then I would get stuck on the stage <laughs> I still remember age five and there was a, they tried to involve everybody as well, and there was a boy who had a caliper on his leg and he couldn't sort of stand for long, so they sat him down and I had to be on his knee and sing Bobby Shafter to him. And that was a kind of indignity. That, you know, <laughs> that a teacher's child yeah, was subject to. Yeah, lots of quadrille had to sing that one, and all kinds of 
things, but we also um, had teachers who were really keen on poetry, I think, and uh, Miss Pole, gosh, yes, and Mrs. Irvin. Say it with expression, Christine. Mm -hmm. um, that was always what she said. And we got, every year we went to the music festival and we did songs, we did poems, we did choral verse, we did dancing, we did plays. Um, we've always been bussed off somewhere to do something. <laughs> so it was, it was so full it was of, of the verbal arts. It really was full of the verbal arts, both in dialect and English. Mm. And I, I brought one or two, I think that had a huge effect. When I was thinking about this, I mean, I immediately started thinking about, you know, the, that was so formative. And they're just silly things, but I just thought, you know, this is my the only book from my childhood that my mother didn't dump out or give away, and it says Christine in very childish writing on it. And it was like, twas the night before Christmas, it's so red that it's falling apart, you know. The stump pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke had encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a round little belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. And to me, that was just so funny. <coughs> my belly was so rude. <laughs> and the fact that it was in a poem, I thought, oh, I got to that bit, I was like, oh. Um, but it was, you know, it's, it's just kind of doggerel in a way, but it was, it was lovely doggerel. And I think rhyme and narrative, those poems particularly sort of really appealed to me um, as, a, as a child. And the ones that stick in my mind, we used to, there was one called The Camel's Complaint. I mean, they're all very Victorian. I, I'm sure some of you will have learned The Camel's Complaint. And I can't remember all five verses, but there's one who goes, um, how's it start? People would laugh if you rode a giraffe or mounted the back of an ox. It's nobody's habit to ride on a rabbit or try to be straddle a fox. But as for a camel, he's ridden by families. Any load does for me. And it had five verses in that tone, and you sort of imagine this camel with this very bad-tempered face. And it was that kind of nonsense stuff, but it was very rhythmic. And, and, uh, and it stayed with you. It stayed with me. I can see them in great, wide, wonderful, beautiful world, all that nonsense. I'm sure some of them you'll remember. I sprang to the stirrup, you know that one? Mm -hmm. And Joris and he, I galloped, galloped, we galloped all three. Good speed, cried the watch as the gate bolts undrew. Speed deck with the wall to us galloping through. Behind shut the postern, the lights sank to rest, and into the midnight we galloped abreast. You remember that one? Yeah. How we sent the good, good news, how we brought the good news from Ghent to it. That was Browning. Right. I'd forgotten it was Browning. Yeah. But, so um, some of those go into the mind without having yeah. the kind of aura of, poet, of poetry, you know, yeah. I'm learning Browning yeah. or no, I'm learning no. such yeah. Tennyson. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it's, it's just a Just absorbed. part of what you do. And we were often expected to learn a lot of this stuff, and we did. John Gilpin was a citizen of credit and renown, a train band captain, eke was he of famous London town. John Gippen's spouse said to her, dear, though wedded we have been these twice ten tedious years, yet we no holiday have seen. Do you know that one? That's brilliant. Tomorrow is our wedding day, and we will then repair unto the bell at Edmonton, all in a chase and pair. And then there's a bit of negotiation as to how they're going to get this chase and pair, and John Gilpin manages to say they'll borrow it, and she thinks this is good. Quoth Mrs. Gilpin, that's well said, and for the wine and for that wine is dear, we will be furnished with our own, which is both bright and clear. John Gilpin kissed his loving wife. Overjoyed was he to find that though on pleasure she was bent, she had a frugal mind. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's the first example in literature of bring your own bottle? <laughs> that's extraordinary. The humour of it and the narrative and the rhyme, but also the words. I think that was probably the first time I'd ever heard frugal. And it's just such a wonderful word. And I suppose it just feels like a kind of a, a bag of marbles somehow. You know, that childhood was just like that, learning these words. And of course, all around me was Shetland dialect, so the English was a bit exotic. And these were exotic marbles. And, and we learned these. But some of you must know John Gilpin. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And what's the train band captain? Eek was he? Eek. Eek was he? Yes. <laughs> it's just so, as I say, exotic. But what about the dialect then? So what was spoken at home? Both. Both. Both, really. Interchangeably? Uh, or? Interchangeably, yes. Um, my parents, both being teachers, especially my father, very keen that as soon as the children stepped over the door of the school, they spoke English. The minute they were out in the playground, they could speak whatever they wanted. And if you met them in the outside, would speak comfortably in either to them. But his view was, and I think he was right, that children needed to learn to speak grammatical English and not confuse the two. And, but we spoke both, and my extended family, we all spoke both quite comfortably and interchangeably. Um, and that was, that was good, I think. But we, we were very fond of, of uh, local poets as well. And I brought one little one, this is with Lowen Finn, with lighted, with lit Finn, by Emily Milne. She only had the one book, but she was a friend of my mother's from school time. So this book says to Christine, with love from mum, February 1975. So it's very precious to me that she gave me a book of poems by a friend, you know. Yes. And it's called the Baba Bokis. I'm only going to read you three little stanzas. Um, and it's a Baba as in lullaby, and Bokis would be, I suppose, kind of like, maybe like the bogeyman, I don't know, but it's not a frightening poem. And it's all about the little people, the trolls, the trolls, and each little stanza has them doing something else. And one I'll read you is, they've got this little cockle shell boat which they're trying to drag down over the beach. They lay down the, the, the lins, the, the, maybe pieces of whalebone or something to drag it down over the beach. And then there's two naughty ones on the backs of the sea fly. And then there's four which have got a sp spider's web and they're trying to catch some moonbeams. So it's just a kind of a dreamy poem. And then to I the shermal age will lins the luff the kill, rindun a pili cockle shall, the andu for maril. And they and cease to yon al tricket brats a bit of sea flesh necks, yam spangin' o'er the ebbing stains, the pili jumpin' jacks. And yondru four was speeders ropes to drag the sati pools, to catch the moon and other stands and hang them up for you. And so on. And, with, and you know, thanks to Noah, do it like the ginga wawa den, the city piri trenke, swadi leil, and noon the drem, and so on. It just goes on and on and on. But it was a completely different bag of marbles, shall we say. Mm. And, um, and were there so many books? Because I wondered whether the Shetland dialect work was so well spread or so, so much printed. Not a, not a huge <laughs> literature, but um, a small, significant literature, I think. And uh, one of the poets, Vagaland, uh, Tommy Alec Robertson, was from our village, and very, very quiet, unassuming man, um, called himself by pen name uh, Vagaland. He wrote some sentimental stuff, but some lovely stuff as well, and very often a concert would have a Vagaland poem, you know. Yes. Some of them were really lovely. He was a very well-educated man. Um, and he did some lovely translations of Horace, and some Norwegian translations, French translations. Um, so we were aware, I think, of a local literature as well. And that, that was good. That was quite formative too, I think. So I mean, all those things, I mean, they're just quite mad, really. There's no great um, merit in them uh, from a literature point of view, but I think from a, a nourishing a child, they were very significant. Yes. Just a love of language, narrative, rhyme, all those things, and, and words, um, yeah. So and, I, keep, I and, and having them to keep, in a sense, because you, yeah. you've, you've learnt them off by I heart. think when I'm an old lady, if I get to be an old, even older lady, <laughs> then um, those will be the things I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. And I, I wouldn't forget also the effect of the King James Bible. I mean, we went yes. to church every Sunday, and uh, the hymns, the psalms. My mother was a lovely singer, and uh, um, some of them quite well written and uh, very rhythmic. And and the Bible, King James, beautiful, metrical. Um, and then they just the cadences of that mm -hmm. are also quite significant, I think. Mm -hmm.
and prepare you to read a lot of English literature. I mean, it kind of worries me mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. that people don't hear that. You know, they don't have any of that, what I would call a kind of ground base uh, in literature, because they're not hearing that language. Um, A poem that you'd mentioned to me was Get Up and Bar the Door. Oh, yes. Now, this was a funny one. Um, I'll get rid of two of these books, anyway. Um, Yes, this was the same teacher. On a Friday afternoon, she was very strict, but on a Friday afternoon, she sort of I think she must have loosened her corsets at lunchtime <laughs> because we always had kind of a story time and um, she would read us uh, children's versions of the classics which was great and even the most sort of recalcitrant boys would, would listen you know quite quite interesting and um, but we had one poem she made us learn was get up and bar the door a wee old scottish ballad and uh, there are five there were five parts um, narrator, a man and his wife, and two nighttime visitors. And we could all do any of those because we knew the whole thing. And so we'd uh, beg her to let us do this as a wee drama. And then once we'd done it, then we'd say, can we do it again? And there'd be another five ready to go, you know. And it was, it was amazing. So I must read you Get Up and Bar. Do you know Get Up and Bar? Oh, it's brilliant. At least I think I just do it. <laughs> it's completely mad. It's a sort of a feminist poem, I think. <laughs> Get up and bar the door. It fell about the Martinmas time and a gay time it was then, when our good wife got puddings to make and she boiled them in the pan. The wind say call blew south and north and blew into the floor. Quoth our good man to our good wife, Get out and bar the door. My hand is in my hussy's cap, good man, as ye may see, and it should not be barred this hundred year, it'd not be barred for me. They made a paction between them twa. They made it firm and sure that the first word twa air should speak should rise and bar the door. There came, then, there, then by there came two gentlemen at twelve o'clock at night, and they could neither see house nor hall nor coal nor candlelight. Now whether is this a rich man's house or whether it's a poor? But near a word would any of them speak for bar another door. <laughs> and first they ate the white puddings, and then they ate the black, the muckle folk, the good wife to sell. Yet near a word she spoke. Then said the one to the other, Here, man, take ye my knife, do ye take off the old man's beard, and I'll kiss the good wife. <laughs> but there's no water in the house, and what shall we do then? What ails thee at the pudding brew that boils it in the pan? What then started our good man, as angry man was he? Will you kiss my wife before my een, and scud me with pudding brie? Then up and started our good wife, gave three skips on the floor. Good man, you've spoken the foremost word. Get up and bar the door. It is quite, quite mad, isn't it? But we just uh, really enjoy doing it. We do it over and over again. <laughs> oh, dear, dear, dear. Uh, but moving on towards mm. from primary school time mm. to into adolescence, and the poem that you picked out from that is the listener, which is actually one of the first poems that really struck me as well. I remember, my, in fact, I got it out from my shelf the other day. My penguin, um, Walter Dunham Man. It's got my mother's handwriting oh, in it too. 1964. Oh, 1964. Uh, yeah, yeah, and um, and it was the the yeah. Walter Dunham Man. Yeah. I think it's a marvelous, marvelous. It poem. is. Um, yes, and it's it's difficult to know really what's going on in it, and that makes it uh, more alluring. And uh, the wee story behind this one is that this is the secondary one, I think, and uh, we had a very firm English teacher, Miss Robertson. She was very, very, very good, but she was very firm. And there were 36 of us in the class. And she would get us to learn poems as well. And this is when we learned. And then she got us to do it as choral verse. I think we were maybe going to be doing it at the musical festival or something like that. But anyway, <coughs> um, this particular day, she was getting us to do it. And then she just said, class one, stop. And she went through to the next room. And she brought Miss White, the French mistress formidable woman, and brought her in and said, now, do it for Miss White. So we did it. And honest to goodness, the two of them were almost in tears. 
<laughs> and that still sticks with me. Yeah. That, that um, a poem could move somebody um, in that way. Anyway, Robert and I to try correlate. Yeah. So you you are Miss Robertson over there, and you are Miss White. And if you know the poem, please feel free to join in. <laughs> okay. And you and you'll hear that Christine's beautiful voice, uh, her rolled R's, which I, as a New Zealander, simply <laughs> cannot do, so you'll, you'll hear kind of difference in tone. Oh no, we'll be totally in tune. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The Listener by Walter Delamere. Is there so anybody there, there, said the traveller, knocking at the moonlit door, and his horse in the silence champed the grass of the forest's ferny floor. And the bird flew up out of the turret above the traveller's head, and he smote upon the door a second time. Is there anybody there? he said. But no one descended to the traveller. No head from the leaf fringed sill leaned over and looked into his grey eyes, where he stood perplexed and still. But only a host of phantom listeners that dwelt in the lone house then stood listening in the quiet of the moonlight to that voice from the world of men, stood thronging the faint moonbeams on the dark stair that goes down to the empty hall, hearkening in an air stirred and shaken by the lonely traveller's call. And he felt in his heart their strangeness, their stillness answering his cry, while his horse moved, cropping the dark turf near the starred and leafy sky. For he suddenly smote on the door even louder and lifted his head, tell them I came and no one answered that I kept my word, he said. Never the least stir made the listeners, though every word he spake fell echoing through the shadows of the still house from the one man left awake. Aye, they heard his foot upon the stirrup and the sound of iron on stone and how the silence surged softly backward when the plunging hoofs were gone. And we're just going to reprise that with two stanzas from Robert Frost stopping by Roots on a snowy evening, the last two stanzas. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. You know, it had never occurred to me to link those two poems until Christine said it. Mm -hmm. And now I just feel that that's such an obvious echo. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a wonderful, so the second one is, is Robert Frost's Stopping um, Which was written first. Ah, uh, yes, wow. Oh, good point. Good I think point. I think so Walter de la Mer, but I'm not absolutely certain. So. Was the character of the two men at all alike? I mean, Frost. Well, I wouldn't have thought so. I would have thought that Frost was a considerably tougher character. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, Walter de la Mer was very interested in the whole business of the of other worlds yeah. and elves and. Fairies more fae. And, and yeah, more fae, mm -hmm. more, more interested in the mysteries of the world, perhaps. Um, less interested in the knotty complexities of human yeah. nature um, than, than Frost was. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 19, well, it's, 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 be, it's before the end of the Second World War, was it, that he wrote that? Oh, First World War? Okay, I have to go to the poetry library. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's, uh, that seems to me a wonderful, um, alluring yes. way of getting into poetry. Yes. It's yes. a very different thing from yeah. the narrative. It is still narrative, of course. Yes, yes. But it's about uh -huh. atmosphere. Uh -huh. uh -huh. But getting, you know, 36 adolescents to, to love it, I think, was quite, quite something. And I think we did. We really enjoyed doing it, yeah. Um, 
adolescence, I think, is often the time when uh, people turn to poetry because they're prey to a lot of churning mm -hmm. emotion. Not that that stops necessarily after adolescence, but it has a particular feeling then. And um, I think a lot of people want to go to that to poetry then because they are in love or fancy themselves in love or want to be in love or you know, are yearning for something, mm. and they are often looking uh, for poetry to mm. to meet that need. Mm. I always remember when I worked in a bookshop and a man came in and said, have you got any sort of romantic poetry? Mm. And I said, oh, here's some Keats, but I realised afterwards that was not the answer he wanted. He really <laughs> wanted Roger McGough, if, yeah. I, if I'd, you know, I'd realised, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the word romantic, I was, I was <laughs> feeling <laughs> But you know that rom yes. the romance of life. Yeah. So do you have something you I don't do, actually I, I have don't, something I in your choices that's a very no, you know, no, I must be an unromantic person. I don't th I think that at that stage, which was in the nineteen sixties and I think that all that was fed by by the Beatles and you know, the Beach Boys and, and Elvis and all that kind of stuff. I mean they were gorgeous romantic. Lyrics, no. <laughs> yes. um, and well, the lyrics were great. They were. So I think for the poems, it was more the beauty of the language that that I fell in love with, really. Um, so the sentiment you went yeah. for in the, in the lyrics. In the of, lyrics, yes. yes. I was just yeah. thinking, to, it was this morning, I thought, Chings, he's stepping down by zigzag paths, and juts of pointing rock, pointed rock came on the shadow, the shallow levels of the lake, there drew he forth the brand Excalibur. And I got a bit confused after that and threw it far into the middle me. I know he doesn't throw it far into the middle me then. But the Mordator, the poem by Tennyson, I, that's when I fell in love with the pentameter, I realised. And I just went and got my old Parnassus and out comes Abu Ben Adam in my father's handwriting. And, was, you know, and it's all these, lo I love these little associations in poetry. Um, you can't do it with a Kindle. No, your father's handwriting. No, no. So I always keep that in there. But I'll give you a tiny bit. But I'm sure you you know that poem well. I am so deeply smitten. This is the king speaking. I'm so deeply smitten through the helm that without help I cannot last till morn. Thou therefore take my brand Excalibur, which is was my pride. For thou rememberest how in those old days, one summer noon, an arm rose out up from out the bosom of the lake, clothed in white samite, mystic. Wonderful, holding the sword, and how I rode across and took it, and have worn it like a king. And wheresoever I am sung or told in after time, this also shall be known. But now delay not. Take Excalibur and fling him far into the middle mere. Watch what thou seest, and likely bring me word. That's to Sir Bedivere. And it just and that goes on later on. He's stepping down by zigzag paths and juts of pointed rock came on the shining levels of the lake. Any time I go to the Lake District, I imagine that scene. It's very, very visual, isn't it? Yes. Um, and this hand coming up with this beautiful sword that be, uh, the, the knight just can't bring himself to throw back into the... So, I mean, that, that fed my romance, I think. My, yes. And uh, ever since then, I've loved Iambic Pentameter. It's a bit where my own. <laughs> um, but you did, you did read English at university? Or I started off doing I did. And I think it was, it was sort of downhill all the way from there, to be honest. Um, I'd loved, I'd really loved poetry and loved English literature. And it was mainly English literature we got. Not a lot of Scottish stuff other than ballads and buns. Um, nothing wrong with ballads and buns, I have to say, but uh, not a lot else. Um, but I think going from a, a more intimate relationship with it, perhaps, to you know, 400 in a class in a big old church, and reading Alexander Pope, and coming to the Garden Maud, and what critics said about it, and what critics said about it, what critics said about it, and it just kind of lost something for me. And I had really, I wanted to be a teacher, I knew that, and I thought to teach English would be what I'd love to do. But I just didn't, it just didn't grip me. And um, no, I don't know why. I just, yes, 
say that I would rather teach geography. Golly. Which I love. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah. good. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I used to have pieces of D.H. Lawrence up in the classroom wall. Oh, did like you? Yeah, there's yeah. lots of snippets of literature which are very good geographical descriptions, yes. Yeah. So uh-huh. I, didn't, I didn't give up you on it. You didn't turn your back no, on it. No, I left poems on the wall. Like, yeah. And at that time, at university and, and then in your teaching time, what would you, how would you describe the poetry life in Scotland, or were you not aware of it so much? I wasn't. I threw myself into my job. Um, and I wasn't nearly so aware of it really at that time. Um, I, uh, as I said to you before, I, I was in a very difficult place in my own private life. I, my marriage was falling apart, and um, and I really found that I kind of lost my confidence, my social confidence. And I, I just stuck to my job. I could do that quite well. I was happy in that environment, and um, and I didn't mix very much. So I think I was slightly anaesthetised almost from what was going on. Um, and having left literature at that point, I, I, I don't think I really uh, did very much. I intended to go back to Shetland to live, that was the plan, but um, because my ex-husband had gone back there, and, and, and as I said to you, Shetland was quite a small place and everybody knows everybody at that time, not now. And I felt I couldn't go very easily so if I went home I just sort of slipped home quietly and saw my folks and came away again and, and um, it really was a, a quite a difficult time and um, I and didn't writing wasn't a consolation or a, a way of working things it, through it for you wasn't then? at that point until well as time went on it did become that and that was a way of re-establishing a, a, a happy link with Shetland I think writing in the dialect suddenly came came to me I think out of a bereavement, out of a feeling of a need to find a way of being part of Shetland again. I'd been sort of cut off and it was a, a very, very important thing to me. At that time not many people were writing in a, in a vernacular. I don't mean in Shetland but I mean here. and. I mean, commercially, it would have been just sort of, you know, completely mad. But it it was emotionally very important to me, I think, mm-hmm. uh, to do that. And uh, and I found, gradually, I found my way to the poetry library. I can still remember the little brown sign on the cannon gate, and thinking, Scottish poetry library? Mm, wow. Um, I'm going in there. And I never looked back, I have to say. <laughs> I uh, couldn't believe there was such a thing, you know. And what poetry were you borrowing? What What were you reading? What was I reading? Well, anything. In, yeah. I mean, I started going to events, I suppose, and so reading books that I was buying at events, and just eclectically, really, um, much more suddenly into the modern era. Yes. Uh, you know. So you kind of leapfrogged. I kind of leapfrogged, I think. Yes. yes. And um, it's quite voracious, I think. But and anything and everything, and women writing poetry, you know, wonderful, yes. Actually, that you, yeah. we'll be noticing that you, yeah. you don't have many women here. I don't, no, because I've stuck mainly, almost entirely, with dead poets. I, I, when I th- if I thought about a living poets, I thought, well, there's so many poets that I know and love their work, and I'm going to end up missing somebody out, or picking a poem that perhaps, you know, they wouldn't have chosen, so I thought, that's a bit tricky, so I thought I'll... But actually, also, I'm, I'm drawing out of where, what made me interested in poetry. Yes. So it does go quite far back. So that's my excuse. I'll stay <laughs> to stay with males. So um, <laughs> let's think about Michael Longley, who's somebody that you, yeah. you've picked out. And, yes, indeed. Um, the poem you've chosen to tell us a bit about it. Right. I've missed out. Um, yeah. I've missed out Sir, Pat, um, Sir Patrick Spens, but yeah. I think that's fair enough. Michael Longley. Right. I've, I've always enjoyed Irish poetry. Patrick Cavanagh and Seamus Heaney and Michael Longley and Kieran Carson and so many, and women poets too. I, I think that there, there's a sensibility in Irish poetry that's, that's wonderful, very lyrical. I suppose if I had to choose between kind of lyrical poetry and less lyrical, I would I would go towards the lyrical, and um, 
Michael and Seamus, I've chosen a poem by each of them. How are we doing? Okay. Mm-hmm. We have Michael first? Yeah. Okay. He's alive. <laughs> He's the only alive yeah, he one. Was here. He yeah, was here. Yes, I know. And the one that I've chosen is um, Ceasefire. Some of you all know that poem. Um, he had it published in the Irish Times just a few days after the ceasefire in 1995 in Northern Ireland. And it's um, a lovely sonnet based around uh, Homer's Iliad, the, the little bit of the narrative where Hector, the Trojan, has been killed by Achilles, the Greek, and Achilles meets Hector's father, Priam, after this, um, the king of Troy. And it's their meeting. Ceasefire. So this is Achilles at the beginning. Put in mind of his own father and moved to tears, Achilles took him by the hand and pushed the old king gently away. But Priam cuddled up at his feet and wept with him until their sadness filled the building. Taking Hector's corpse into his own hands, Achilles made sure it was washed and, for the old king's sake, laid out in uniform, ready for Priam to carry, wrapped like a present home to Troy at daybreak. When they had eaten together, it pleased them both to stare at each other's beauty as lovers might. Achilles built like a god, Priam good-looking still and full of conversation, who earlier had sighed, I get down on my knees and do what must be done and kiss Achilles' hand, the killer of my son. I find it a, a, a very moving poem and to think that he published that at such a time of when there was such a need for compassion and, and reconciliation and real reconciliation, genuine regard for each other's viewpoint and position. Um, and it's a beautifully made poem. Um, the rhyme scheme is, is there, but it's very unforced and um, it's the kind of poem I think a poet would say, I wish I'd written that, you know. Yes. Um, so it has a kind of conversational ease. It does. It's almost, it's it's almost relaxed, isn't it? It is very yes. relaxed. Yeah. And, then, and that's what I think makes the last line yeah. all the more powerful yeah. because you're not really, yeah. you're following the action yes, these two and men. you're becoming used to it yes. almost. Yes. And then Boom. the last yeah. line yeah. suddenly... Yeah identifies their relationship yes. in, a, in a horrifying way. Absolutely um, horrifying, yeah. But, yeah. but yeah. also yeah. that element of reconciliation. Yeah, no, I think it is a, um, a really wonderful poem. Um, and he has such a range of poetry, Michael Longley. Some really quite simple little poems, tender little poems, but it's family, and, and he has ones like that which are really um, just you know, different playing all together. It's interesting that you said you like the Mort Dathas, so thinking of kind of old legends, yeah, yeah. you know, and mm -hmm. then finding that here mm -hmm. seems to me quite mm -hmm. an ex extraordinary um, reanimation yeah. of the story. Yeah. And of course, Seamus Heaney. Heaney, yes. Well, again, we could take well, many, many You've got the whole yeah. we collected there, <laughs> and it was very difficult for yeah. you. So no. you've heard him reading, presumably, yeah. yourself. You've heard him reading. I have, yes. And a great reader, and, and such a kind of modest man, but such talent, and such knowledge, and such, yeah, such ability, just everywhere. Yeah. This one's called The Walk, and it's two sort of loose, sort of slight stanzas, um, sonnets. Um, and I, as far as I can gather, it's a walk as a child going with his parents, and the world is perfect, you know and then going the same walk with his love at a later date. I think that's what it's about. The walk, glamour the road, the day, and him and her and everywhere they took me. When we stepped out, cobbles were riverbed, the Sunday air a high stream roof that moved in silence over rhododendrons in full bloom, foxgloves and hemlock, Robin round the hedge, the hedge with its deckled ivy and thick shadows, 
until the riverbed itself appeared, gravelly, shallowy, summery with pools, and made a world rim that was not for crossing. Love brought me that far by the hand, without the slightest doubt or irony, dry-eyed and knowledgeable, contrary as be damned. They just kept standing there, not letting go. So here is another long shot, black and white, a negative this time, in dazzle dark, smudge and pallor, where we make out you and me, the selves we struggled with and struggled out of. Two shades who have consumed each other's fire, two flames in sunlight that can sear and singe, that seem like wisps of enervated air, after wavers, feathery ether shifts, yet apt to still to rekindle suddenly if we find along the way charred grass and sticks and an old fire fragrance lingering on, erotic wood smoke, witchery, intrigue, leaving us none the wiser, just better primed to speak the plough again and feed the flame. I think it's a very wonderful poem in a way about the, these two different kinds of love. The love, I think, a parent-child relationship where the world is quite formed and everything is as it should be and you feel secure and then that wonderful, wonderful insecurity but joy of, of um, a loving relationship where there's a lot of ambivalence and, um, and that, what's it coming... The selves we struggled with and struggled out of. I love that line. Um, so I, I love that first half where you come to the river and yeah. you can't, you don't can't cross, cross it. No, no. It's the edge of your known yes, world, yes. and it's so beautifully yeah. Yeah. delineated yeah. like yeah. that. You know, yeah. you're you're secure with your parents. Yes. Love brought me there that far by the hand without the slightest doubt at all. Dry-eyed and knowledgeable. Yeah. Yes, we know it all. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's called the walk. The walk. The walk. Yeah. Uh huh. So I think I, I mean I, I could have chosen a thousand, well, hundred poems by Hini, but I mean that one I felt it, it's, it's very nicely made poem as well. Mm. Yeah. Speaks to. Mm -hmm. Speaks to. Yeah. Um, and I know, of course, that the the Scottish poets of the previous generation have also spoken very oh, yeah. powerfully yeah. to you. And um, it was during the 80s, I guess, after the establishment of the Poetry Library that you would have been able to hear them around yes. town yes. reading. Yes. Um, right. And Ian Crichton-Smith and Sylvia yes. McLean, obviously, yep. Norman McKay, yep. yes, yep. All, those, all, those uh, ones. all those that you carry with you. Don't um, have enough time for them all, but they're yes. all wonderful. And I think we stand on their shoulders. And I mean, there's such a flowering of Scottish poetry you now. It's amazing and, and so varied and so wonderful. But I think we owe a lot to those um, real poets who put Scottish poetry on the map and got us away from that it could only be Burns and Macdermott. You know. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, keeping with the Max, the McCaig, mm. um, is that, I think you said to me that. McCabe was really probably the most talismanic poet. For I think you so. Of I mean, I read a lot of his poetry, and I love it all. And it's it's so varied and and um, so clever some of it, and yet so some of it's so simple as well. Um, no, I it definitely and the images he uses and his language, I just love it really, and. Uh, and you've yeah. chosen something very romantic, by the yes, way, because it's not the way that one necessarily associates with Norman McKay. No, it's one of his earlier ones, really. It yeah, is, yeah. from the it's, 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 it's gifts, and, and actually I found it also in the new poetry, way back, he and Ian Crichton Smith, I think, were the only Scottish poets, I think, in that collection, and it was in that one as well. Is that a Alvarez's one? one, yeah. Oh, um, yes, and it's also lovely because it's 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 the reference in the 
the paper sculpture it for is, their poetry indeed, library. Indeed, so that makes yes. it even. I didn't bribe Christine to choose this one, but no. it does have a connection with the library mm -hmm. in that if you know the story of the anonymous paper sculptures that were left to various institutions around Edinburgh, and that started off with one that came to the poetry library. And the first one was, of course, gifted to us, and this is called Gifts. Mm -hmm. and, um, and at the end, the last in the series was um, a wonderful glove of bee's fur and a cap of the wren's wings, yeah. which are done in paper. And if you haven't seen them, then let me encourage you once again to come down to the poetry mm -hmm. library and, and look at them. Mm -hmm. But this is the beautiful mm -hmm. poem that... Yeah, that it's quite a complex them. poem to try and get your head round just on listening. So I hope it'll make some sense to you. Um, Gifts by Norman McCaig. You read, it's a love poem, you read the old Irish poet and complain I do not offer you impossible things. Gloves of bees' fur, cap of the wren's wings, goblets so clear, light falls on them like a stain. I make you the harder offer of all I can, the good and ill that make of me this man. I need no fancy to mark you as beautiful if you are beautiful. All I know is what darkens and brightens the sad waste of my thought is what makes me your wild truth-telling fool who will not spoil your power by adding one vainglorious image to all we've said and done. Flowers need no fantasy, stones need no dream, and you are flower and stone, and I compel myself to be no more than possible, offering nothing that may one day seem a measure of your failure to be true to the greedy vanity that disfigures you. A cloak of the finest silk in Scotland, what has that to do with troubled nights and days of sorry happiness? I had no praise even of your kindness that was not bought at such a price. This bankrupt self is all I have to give. And is that possible? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me shiver that one. Yeah. It's such a mm, intense love poem, really, I think. And it's again so beautifully made. I mean, the rhyme scheme, A, B, B, A, C, C, it's so... So unconscious, really. Um, but I do like a, a kind of well-made poem, yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to, I think, close with a poem um, and then ask you for if you have any questions mm -hmm. and leave a few minutes at the end to mm -hmm. send you out with poetry rather than yeah. our prose. Yeah. So uh, you've Gale, got... Galen. Oh, you've got Galen. Galen. Yes. Another lovely poet, Scottish poet, who died um, some years ago now was Gail Turnbull. And I think, Hamish, you, did you not edit this book? Yeah, the collected poems of Gail. And I get such a range of poems, but this one, I, I love it. It's called, Is It? It Is Not. It's a, and it's built on the image of the peat fire. And it it's, means, I think, I love it too, because we had a lot of peat fires. And latterly, when my mother was very ill and dying, really, and my father looking after her, I would be going home occasionally to try and help out. And, and with a peat fire in the living room and a peat fire in the sitting room, and, and she could kind of manage between the two, um, you know, for a meal in one room and then maybe sit down in, in another room. And trying to keep two peat fires going is actually, I found, quite, quite tiring. <clears throat> so it is not. It is not the size of the peats, nor their number, nor anything particularly remarkable about their shape or their quality that sustains a fire. But it is their continual placing without fuss, and in due sequence around the centre of the hearth, especially at morning and at night, so as not to starve or scatter or smother. So it is with our affection. Decide to put it out if you choose. But don't let it die for lack of a little ordinary care. Oh. <laughs> I think that's a lovely love poem too, you know, just the ordinariness of life and love. Um, 
But yes, I thought this is just shocking, absolutely shocking. They're all men, and that will not do. And it's because most of the poems, other than Michael Longley, were, were dead poets. Was that Elizabeth? Yes, was that Let's later? Oh, let's see that one. Yes. Do you want to do Eddie's? Eddie's one, yes, Eddie's. Yes. How could I not do Eddie's one? This is brilliant. This is going. This one is going to sustain me in my next decade. I hope I get to my next decade. <laughs> Living off poetry. At 80, Edwin Morgan. Push the boat out, camp and yarrows. Push the boat out, whatever the sea. Who says we cannot guide ourselves through the boiling reefs, black as they are? The enemy of us all makes sure of it. Mariners, keep good watch always for that last passage of blue water we have heard of and long to reach. No matter if we cannot, no matter. In our 80-year-old timbers, leaky and patched as they are, but sweet, well-seasoned with the scent of woods long perished, serviceable still in unarrested pungency of salt and blistering sunlight. Out, push it all out into the unknown. Unknown is best. It beckons best, lies distant ships in mist, or bells clanging ruthless from stormy boys. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> That'll keep you going. <laughs> Does anybody have a question? That that it's not a question, but the, um, according to Google, the day of the mayor was in 1912 and the frost was 23. Oh, right. Ah, thank you. Good, thank you. Well, you see this modern technology. <laughs> Does anybody have anything that they would like to ask, Christine? No? <laughs> I'd quite <laughs> enough. Oh, there, there's, there's, could you repeat the name of that last poem by Morgan? By Morgan. At, no, it's just called At 80. At 80, at 80 yeah. Uh -huh. So, yes, if we were in the poetry library, mm -hmm. uh, we would provide you with a little sheet. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> a crib yeah. sheet. Uh -huh, but, um, uh -huh. uh, yeah. Yes, a nice one to send in an 80th birthday card. I would say <laughs> that one. <laughs> Um, since you were a geographer as well as a poet, what do you think of Kenneth White? I know that the poetry library doesn't promote Kenneth White terribly much, and I wonder what the views are of an exiled poet like that who deals with the coastline. Hmm. <laughs> well, he has read in the poetry library. Yes, he has. Yes, uh, to uh, a packed audience. Yeah, in the yeah, yeah. Yes, he has a, a, a fan base, especially in Brittany. I'm, I'm not a huge fan, uh, and this geopoetics, uh, as a geographer, I just don't quite get it, no. Um, I mean, I, I, yes, it's, some of it's quite nice, but it's not something that moves me, no. no it's very spare, very sparse. And, um, it's just, I, I suppose I like something a bit more lyrical. Yeah. More textured? Or? Yeah, yeah. I, I did read at a festival with him in Brittany once. That was very interesting. <laughs> I'll not go there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a shame. <laughs> well, I could tell you one funny little story. Um, yeah, um, what's his name? Um, oh, the Campbell uh, guy from Lewis. Scotland, um, Pat, uh, no, the Angus, Angus, Angus Peter, 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 Angus Peter, Peter Cameron and I were in, in Brittany as well at this little festival, and and Kenneth, who lives in Brittany, of course, was there, and uh, we went uh, religiously to all his things, and then he said, oh yes, yes, he would come, he would come to ours, but then when we were reading our our poetry, I was peeping in the window. Geographical background. I, I do write quite a lot of 
a lot of the images I maybe use are, are themes come out of the natural landscape and the the making of it and the remaking of it. So I suppose maybe McKay might be a wee bit like that. But I'm not terribly aware. Other people are probably more able to see than I am. You know, sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees. And Actually, the poems you've chosen are full of people rather than landscapes. Oh, they yeah. do have landscapes as well, but actually yeah. they're quite <coughs> populated. Yeah, so yes. that's quite an interesting it is, thing to notice. Just think about it. Yeah. Yes. Do you have any rituals to when, where, how you write? Rituals. Sharpen your pencil. <laughs> Tear my hair out, my <laughs> No, I don't. I'm really very ill-disciplined. Um, I have to say, um, no rituals whatsoever. I, I, I sometimes obviously know it with Maka, I have to just sit down and get on with it and try and think. But generally speaking, uh, I wouldn't be, I'm not a regular writer. I just write when suddenly something compels me to write and then I write in a, in a hand that's completely unrelated to my normal handwriting, which is quite bizarre. Very, 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 very untidy. In fact, my workspace is very untidy. The house is relatively tidy, but my workspace is a mess. And I've, I, and I have no control over that. It's quite weird, Shania. You know. Maybe that's a ritual. I'm going to call it a ritual. <laughs> and I'm dreading because I've got the painter coming for that little room, and I'm absolutely dreading it because I'm going to have to tidy it up. You could cancel the painter. <laughs> it's knitting done. <laughs> oh dear, and I can shut the door on it, see, and other people are not really very welcome in it. The gas engineer had to come in yesterday, and that was quite why. <laughs> a private space. It is a private space, but it's not pretty. And a different space. It's a different space, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As Michael, when you get a commission, do you think about it, or do you say sit down? I have to. Yeah, I have to put the tower on my head at that point, and I worry about it for a while. And try and find some sort of something that's going to something grist that's going to, to work for it. And once I once I get started it's usually okay, but it's just trying to because you're having to warm yourself up to the task, there's nothing natural that's about right. it. Mm -hmm. But it's it's a good discipline I've found. Uh, but I'm I'm not carrying it forward into my other work. No. <laughs> it doesn't spark off something else that you might write, you know. So you have to write about I don't know what it might yeah. be. Yeah, I'm worried about the, the writing of the marches at the moment. I've got to do that, something for that, and I've never been to a writing of the marches. Ah. So it's quite sort of abstract. And, yeah. If I could go to one be before I wrote it, life would be a lot easier. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you, Christian, um, does the Viking Norse Icelandic tradition mm. is so important in Shetland mean anything particular to you? Or? You didn't mention yes, and I'm very, I mean, we've not talked at all about translation and that kind of side yes. of things. I've been involved with, uh, you know, like Icelandic poets and Norwegian poets mm. and that side of things. And, I, and I've been to Norway two or three times reading poetry. And uh, and I've also written poems which link in a wee well, bit. We've just translated the Caravan. Oh yes, the Kalevala, I forgot about that. Yeah, uh, well, only little bits of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I find, I mean, uh, I'm much more attuned to the Norse myths than, say, the Greek myths. Um, they make a lot more sense to me. I mean, for example, my fa when I visited my, with my dad, we go to his mum and dad's place. Um, Orgil, Vidlin, and he could look across the valley and he's, uh, it was Midgart. No, Midgarth is in, it's in the um, Twilight of the Gods, isn't it? Midgarth. And all the place names and the boats that were sailing when I was a child were the Valkyrie, not the Valkyrie, um, Valkyrie, Valhalla, Fivla, the names of the boats, you know, the racing boats were yes. all, so that, yes, it was all kind of real, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, I would say mm -hmm. a rich scene, which I, 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 I've not done enough on, but uh, I, yeah. I wrote, I wrote one poem called Fraka, uh, one of the Norse names, and 
because uh, there's a place called Frackerfield, Frackerfield, and I imagine this Norse woman, uh, maybe a widowed or something like that. Why is it called after her? You know, normally it'd be uh, they're mostly after men. It's right next to Grimister, which was Grimer's farm, you see. And I'm thinking, right, what's this woman like? I'm imagining her life, you know. So yeah, it does feed into my imagination. I've got two questions first because I'm Norwegian, so I'm quite Ooh. curious whether you have like any favorite Norwegian poets. And then the second question was because you mentioned about like how uh, important it was for you to have poetry read to you in your childhood yeah, yeah. and the pleasure of like having that read to you and hearing it a lot and uh, also dramatizing it in school. Mm -hmm. And like, well, the generation that also from now, like they will probably like have an iPad before they have like the first book for like yeah. Uh, so would you say that you think that that's something that's kind of like disappearing out of like the childhood? The importance, mm -hmm. well, the presence of poetry, the presence of having that read to you by your parents. By I remember my grandmother would would recite poems all the time, mm -hmm. but. I'm not sure if that's something that I'm going to do to my book. I'm going to take that second question first. I think the discipline of learning poetry is maybe less in schools. I mean, now we've got poetry by heart. The Poetry Library is trying to encourage um, that back into the school curriculum, I think, and that's a great thing. I do think learning by heart, and the word learning by heart is a lovely term when you think about it. Uh, and I think it gives you that. Um, um, mobile library of, of uh, lovely things that you, you have um, and I think that discipline is probably not, we don't expect children to do that, but I don't mind it, it's the cat in the hat, I mean that's fine, uh, you know, blue cheese and ham, what is it, blue green cheese, blue cheese and ham, I mean I, I think just anything that children will learn and enjoy is, is, is fun, uh, I'd be all for it, I'm dying to be a granny so I can Inflict poetry. <laughs> My son wasn't very keen on it. <laughs> um, Norwegian poets. Norwegian poets, yes. Well, the dear Arne Rust, and you, yes. you know. Arne Rust, you know him? Um, Mausolo area. I, I do like his poetry, and we worked together a bit uh, translating. And I was over for his 70th birthday, and we had a celebration. and. Um, he very kindly, uh, he's a big collector now, and he very kindly put one of my poems in, in the tail end of that. Uh, yeah, this is really very, very nice. Uh, Tor Sorheim is the other one we've had over here. Yes. Um, I know his poetry a little bit. Uh, beyond that, um, Oyston Orton, I know Oyston Orton, yeah. Um, I'm struggling, I'm struggling. Give me a bit of help. <laughs> but there's a three that I uh, know and, and like their poetry very much. But that's a personal connection, it's personal and, connection. And, a, and a translating connection. Uh, yes, so. yes, indeed. Uh -huh. um, and it was very interesting when we took um, some poets to Shetland um, to translate each other's works mm. that there were this, all these words in common, oh, yeah, that yeah. they actually had mm. Mm -hmm. distinctly a language in common and one felt the northernmost pull. Yes, yes. I mean Norway and, and Shetland are very, Shetland sees itself as very close to Norway and um, as children we were very aware of that. And the Shetland bus of course in the wartime was a very, you know, the evacuation of Norwegian, um, that they came through Shetland, but also all my childhood we had Norwegian sailors and um, fishermen coming into our little harbour. And my dad could speak Norwegian, and they used to come along and you know uh, into the house, and, and it's it just it was really lovely. And all the place names are all Nor Norwegian, you know. Birds' names are all Norwegian. Ah. Mm -hmm. Just obviously the Scots and Shetlandic cohabiting in your own mind. Mm -hmm. I won't ask what you dream in, but in practical translation terms. If you're translating from Icelandic or Norwegian to Shetlandic, can you go directly from one to the other, or do you go, or is English a stepping stone? I always have English as well. And an English form in between. So I've got a hair in my mouth. Mm. Extra protein. Mm, not nice. Anyway, um, I'd always want the English as well, but I would always want to see the Icelandic or the Norwegian as well. 
Um, I wouldn't want to do it without that original. Now, if I were trying to do something for, as we did for the Palestinian poets, we're totally dependent on the English. The, the Palestinian uh, text meant nothing to me, other than I tried to look at the line breaks, but I, I tried to listen to someone saying it, but I couldn't really understand it. But with at least with the Icelandic and say Norwegian or French, I can get quite a lot out of it. And um, and the sound of it as well. So I'd always want that, but I would definitely want the English as well. <laughs> and what do you dream in? What do I dream in? Oh, I don't know. What do I dream in? Visual things, I think. It's quite visual dreams rather than spoken, I think. Yeah. Is any, are there any sounds in my dreams? I'm not sure there are. No. It's very visual. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Probably say more than you meant. Mm -hmm. um, can we conclude with a poem? Mm -hmm. Well, I thought it was shocking not to have a, a woman poet. So I chose one by Elizabeth Burns. Now, some of you will know that Elizabeth um, died recently. She was in her late 50s, I think, but far, far, far too soon. And a, a lovely poet, really. Um, and her latest project was working with an artist and a potter and she wrote poems. But she had been writing poets, poems about pottery before then. Uh, and this one is uh, based on the image of, of a pot being made. And it's, and it's also um, from a series of poems, sort of elegiac poems. I don't know if it's a, a memory of her father, DGB it might be, and a PGH, but it's um, in memory of two people who obviously meant quite a lot to her. The Enfolding. As the potter enfolds air with porcelain, making in this new vessel a presence around an absence, containing what's invisible, and at the same time smoothing into being something that the hands can cup. So, walking through October woods, I find myself reaching out in some ancient gesture of holding and encircling, as if I clasped my hands around your body in its sickness, as if by this I could give you, for a moment, strength, fastening more tightly your spirit to its fragile skin. Thank you.